Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 24. Genesis 24. And if you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, you can find this on page 19. Page 19. I'm not going to jump into reading it just yet. I want to say a few things here first. Um, As we come to Genesis 24, this morning we come to a fascinating chapter. Now at first glance, it might look just like the story of a a love story, of a man finding a bride for his son. Nothing too significant. Just a nice story, maybe something you see on the Hallmark Channel. And yet... Here in chapter 24, of all places, we find the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. So the question that I've been wrestling with all this week is, why? I mean, why is so much space given to this story of finding a wife for Isaac? Why is this longer than the account of creation? I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Why is this longer than the flood? Longer than Abraham's call? What is it about this chapter that makes it so important that it's given 67 verses? And what I would argue is that the importance of this chapter is found in how we see the connection between two key concepts. The promises of God and the providence of God. Now if you've been with us as we go through Genesis, we've been talking about promises every week as we've been studying Abraham and his faith. They're central to what's happening here. We've seen that the key to his walking by faith and not by sight is that he trusts the promises of God. And it's that trust, that faith, that God credited to him as righteousness. So clearly, trusting the promises of God is a massively important concept. But what gives Abraham and us The confidence that God is able to keep those promises. It's all well and good to say, trust the promises, but what gives us confidence that God's able to keep those promises? What are they built on? And I would argue that a key foundation for our faith is the providence of God. Providence is a massively important reality for the Christian life. Because if you and I are going to trust God and his promises, we need to know and understand and believe deep down in our bones how it is that he's able to keep those promises. And the doctrine of providence shows us just that. So it begs the question, what do we mean by providence? Well, I thought a lot about how I could give you some, my own definitions, but rather than give you a new one, I wanted to look at three really old definitions from church history that give us a window into what this precious word providence means. And you can think of it as each of these definitions. I hope you savor these. These are like vitamins for your faith. Just take these in and let your heart and mind just chew on these words. Okay? So here's our first definition. This is from the Belgic Confession of just a couple years ago, 1561. Here's what they said. We believe that this good God after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. So I'm going to 
pick out a couple things as we go. I want you to hear, God didn't abandon the world to chance or luck. What happens out there is not just what will be, will be. It's not a fatalistic, I don't know, it's just the way the world's work. No, no, no. It says God leads and governs all things according to his will, such that nothing happens without his orderly arrangement. Okay? Let's go fast forward two years. Next one. Heidelberg, 1563. It asks the question, what do you understand by the providence of God? The answer, the almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. I love that. If you want to remember one thing about providence, I think that idea of almighty, everywhere present power of God is a great place to start. And here he, they, they're at pains to show us it's all things, not just the good things, the good things and the bad things come by his fatherly hand. One more. We're going all the way up to 1689 here. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Here's how they define providence. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. I wanted you to hear that from the greatest to the least, by his most holy and wise providence, and notice it says, to the end for which they were created. That's really important because that means Providence has a purpose. Some people will say like, well, there's just fate. Things just happen, that they were just bound to happen. But there's no purpose to that. It's not going anywhere. But here we see that providence always has a purpose. And what is it? To the praise of the glory of God's wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Okay, so this is just a little window into what providence is. I feel like if you just mull those over, you're going to have a good Sunday. Those are vitamins for your faith that if you're like, yes, that is true, that'll get you through your week. Okay, but that, this idea of providence is what chapter 24 is all about. The focus of chapter 24 is on providence. Here's how I would sum up all 67 verses. You ready? God's good promises are marching on through God's kind providence. God's good promises are marching on through God's kind providence. And this chapter is all about the work of God to keep the promises of God and satisfy the people of God. But here's what I want you to notice. As we read through chapter 24, this providence, this working of God, it's not through miracles. There's no word from heaven. There's no parting of the seas. No stopping of the sun. Now, to be clear, God can and does sometimes work that way. But more often, God works through normal, 
ordinary means of providence. In his providence, God is always working, even when it's in the background and you can't see it. Sometimes it's flashy and you can't miss it, but all the time, God is working, like a, an app on your phone that runs in the background. You don't know that it's always doing its thing, but God's providence is always working. And so here, as we look at this, what we're reminded about is that there is no detail of life that God is not reigning over. And we sang that. We, we sang songs about, behold our God seated on his throne. And we love to say that, but we need to know that's not just a nice and yet ultimately useless doctrine, we believe. That reality is what allows us to build our lives on his promises. Why? Because if God governs all things from the greatest to the least, do you know what that means? That means he can keep every promise he makes. If God made these grandiose, really sweet-sounding promises, and yet he didn't govern all things, there's the chance he may not be able to deliver on those promises. So in order for us to have confidence in the massively big promises of God, we need to have the knowledge and the assurance that there's a massively big providence of God also at work. We can have faith and trust him for all things at all times because he is sovereign over all things at all times. So here as we come to the end of Abraham's life, we get a glimpse of why it is that Abraham can have such faith in God. Why? Because God is a God of providence. Now, because this chapter is so long, we're going to tackle it a little differently. Rather than read it all in one chunk up front, I'm going to read it as we go. So I'll read it in four sections and then kind of explain them along the way. Now, disclaimer, I'm not going to be able to say everything about every detail. We would be here till the prayer gathering at five. But what we're going to focus on is how we see this idea of providence play out all through this chapter. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's our outline this morning. Verses 1 to 9, we see how Abraham is confident in providence. Then in verses 10 to 27, we see that his servant is dependent on providence. That same servant in verses 28 to 61 is obedient to providence. And finally, at the end of our passage, we see the intent of providence. In verses 62 to 67. Okay, so let's jump in. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. So look down there with me. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. 
So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Okay, so here we've got Abraham. He's old, it says, and well advanced in years. And we see that just like God had promised him back in chapter 12, what do we learn about Abraham? He's been blessed in all things. And now he comes, most likely he's on his deathbed here. We know he's in the next chapters when we actually hear of his death. But there's probably a reason why Abraham can't go himself to arrange his son's marriage. He has to send his most trusted servant because he's old and frail. But we see that finding a son or finding his son a wife is exactly what is at the forefront of Abraham's mind here. As he's nearing the end, he's tasted so much of the blessing of God But now as he nears the time of his death, he's concerned to see that the blessing and the promises live on through Isaac and his offspring. So he calls his oldest, most trusted servant and makes him swear an oath that he will under no circumstances take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites that lived all around them. Now why is Abraham so adamant that his son not marry one of these Canaanites? Well, it's because these people are part of the line of curse, not the line of promise. If you remember all the way back when we did Genesis 9, talking about Noah, in Genesis 9, 25, do you remember the curse Noah declared? He said, cursed be Canaan. So not only that, not only is that in the background, we know that these people of Canaan are of the curse line. Fast forward to Abraham's life, and we know back in chapter 15, God told him that one day the sins of these people The Amorites, which included the Canaanites, would be filled up and they would be judged by God and kicked out of the land. So Abraham knows, okay, the people all around me, one day they're going to be judged. I don't know when, but one day when their iniquity is filled up. And so Abraham doesn't want to risk the line of promise becoming intermingled with these unbelievers. Not only that, Abraham knew that there would be a danger to having his offspring Marry people who did not share the primary identity that they had. Abraham's offspring were going to be people of the promises. That defined who they were. If you talk to any of Abraham's offspring, the core of their identity was found in, bound up in, wrapped up in the fact that they had the promises of God. That's what they built their lives around. But if they married unbelievers who did not trust those same promises, their lives would be fundamentally incompatible and they would be tempted to start drifting away from those promises, to follow the lead of their spouse and start worshiping other gods or caring about other things. And we see the same principle play out all over the Bible, don't we? In Deuteronomy 7, when Israel is getting ready to go back into this same land to take possession of it, What did Moses tell them? You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So God is clear. As his people get ready to go into the land, he's like, listen, you cannot marry them because he doesn't want his promise-believing people marrying those who don't believe the promises. We might say, okay, yeah, that's a, that was kind of a weird Old Testament thing, right? No. This is pulled into the New Testament. Paul says the same thing to Christians. 
Among other places, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, he says that when a woman's husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So again, why is God so insistent about who his people marry? I mean, can't people, I mean, people can get married and have different tastes and music and movies and hobbies and all kinds of things, right? So what does it matter if they have different preferences on religion? Because God knows that nothing will impact your following him more than your spouse. If your spouse shares your hope in Christ and encourages you to trust him, friends, there is no greater help to your faith. But if your spouse does not believe what you believe and does not treasure what you treasure, there is no greater challenge to your faith. So what does this mean for us? Two things, I think. First, if you're here and you're single and you're a follower of Jesus, do not marry someone who doesn't trust and treasure Jesus above all things. It's really that simple. And let me go one step further. If you know, most Christians would acknowledge that, right? They'd say, yeah, I've heard that. But let me go one step further. If you know you shouldn't marry an unbeliever, don't date one. Because guess who you tend to marry? The people you date. So if you know this is not, I, I don't want this to lead anywhere, why would you go on dates with someone with an eye towards maybe moving that direction. This is huge. So if you're single and a follower of Jesus, do not marry someone who doesn't share your hope in the promises. Second thing I would say, parents, help your kids with this. Teach them the importance of dating and marrying someone who loves Christ and who lives a life of faithful obedience to him. But don't just teach them, pray. Pray earnestly for them to meet and marry someone like that. Even go further. Introduce them to godly people their age. Encourage them in relationships with fellow believers. Do whatever you can to help your children find a spouse who will help them follow Jesus and trust God's promises for the rest of their lives. That's the calling, I think, on parents. And guess what? That's what Abraham's doing right here. He makes his servants swear to not let his son marry a Canaanite, but to go back to his own people to find a wife for him. At this point, now the servant then raises a really helpful, I think, good question. He says, that's all well and good, Abraham, but what if she doesn't want to come back? Should should I take Isaac there then? And Abraham says, no way. Why? Because Abraham's fully trusting in God's promises and confident in his providence. He's saying, this is the promised land. We don't leave this. This is God's gift to us. Excuse me. Now notice in verse 7 how he reaches all the way back to what God said to him in his original call in chapter 12. Do you hear the echoes? In verse 7 he says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. In other words, Abraham's looking. He's like, look, I know this God. And he's confident that this God will work it out and provide a wife for Isaac so the promises can be passed down. But then he says, look, even if he doesn't, if he doesn't do what I think he's going to do, Isaac must not leave the promised land. God will work it out some other way. 
I've seen him do that before, chapter 22. But this, this land, he doesn't leave because this is a land of promise. Now what's so noteworthy here is that these are Abraham's last recorded words in the Bible. And what we see about them is they are just brimming with faith in God's providence. Notice some of these things. He calls him the God of heaven and God of earth. Abraham knows this God, he's over all things. He's seen on the mountain in chapter 22, the Lord will provide. God has been working out his promises all throughout Abraham's life. And Abraham has every confidence this God can be trusted to work out this need as well. Now, this is really significant because this is a pretty large shift from the first words we have from Abraham, right? Also back in chapter 12, when he's so afraid of what's going to happen to him in Egypt because of Sarah, his wife. His lack of faith then led him to take things into his own hand and say, I've got to make a plan. I've got a scheme. I've got to use deceit to protect myself and watch out for number one. But here at the other bookend of his life, after all he's seen God do, he puts this massively important issue of finding a wife for Isaac completely in God's hands. Abraham has learned to trust God and his promises. Therefore, he's confident in his providence. So after Abraham says this, the servant swears the oath. Then we pick the story back up in verse 10. So look down there with me. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. 
She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Let's pause there. So now, now what do we see here? Here we have this trusted servant. Now we're not sure who this guy even is because his name is never mentioned. Some people speculate maybe it's Eliezer that we met back in chapter 15. Could be. We don't know. And yet what we do know is that this humble, ordinary, unknown servant is about to play an incredibly significant role in God's unfolding plan. Which I love when the Bible does this because it just reminds me, hey, you ever feel ordinary? Ever feel unknown? Good news. God loves to use unknown and ordinary servants for his purposes. So we've got one of them here. And this servant, he sets out on this long journey back to Abraham's people. Now this is a journey of about 500 miles. Which means it would take them, give or take, three weeks. And as he sets out, he takes with him ten camels. Now you know already the camels are going to factor in in a little bit. But you also need to know that camels were a luxury item of the day, right? So when you have 10 camels, one, one person compared this to now, it'd be like if, if you're outside and all of a sudden you see 10 really nice big black SUVs roll up, you're like, somebody important is here. Somebody who has influence and money because that's a lot of dollar signs that just rolled up. Well, same thing, back then 10 camels roll up, you're like, oh, who's here? But what's most important to see here about the servant is that he is dependent on God's providence. He is dependent. How do we know? Well, we know because as soon as he arrives at the well, what does he do? He prays. He knows if this is going to go well, he needs God to act. He needs God to be working in this situation. And that's what all prayer says. When we pray, we declare We are dependent on God's providence. We are acknowledging that if we're to see any good come of whatever we're about, we need God to move. It's not just that it'd be nice. God, it would be really awesome if you did something. I mean, we'll probably figure it out even if you don't. It's it's not that at all. Prayer is saying we are 100% fully reliant on God and his kind providence to work good for us. That's where the servant is. So he prays. And in verse 14, he prays for God to make clear, did you catch this? The one whom he has appointed. He's saying there's one that God himself has appointed. The servant is banking on God being intimately involved in this process. And it's important to note that what he prays for here, this isn't something random. I think sometimes we think he just made up a test. He doesn't pray for the right woman and say, God, would you let the right woman have a bright green dress on? Or, God, would you let the woman that you chose uh, help her to have a palm tree carved on her water jar? He's not just making something up. When he prays that this woman would not only honor his request for a drink, but also volunteer to water his camels, he's praying to see something that would indicate, here's a woman of exceptional kindness and generosity and hospitality. A woman who would go the extra mile for others. 
See, the fact that she would give him a drink if he asked, that wouldn't have been unusual. That was custom. But if she also offered to water the camels, that was extraordinary. That would say something. That would be a bright flag saying, look at this woman. Look what kind of woman she is. Now in verse 15 then, we have one of my favorite parts of the chapter. Did you notice that it said, before he had finished speaking, Rebecca shows up with her water jar. This is so encouraging to me, and I hope it is for you. Because what we see here is that God is not just responding to the servant's prayer. He's not waiting, sitting around until the servant asks, and then once the servant asks, saying, oh, okay, I I guess I should go get Rebecca and send her along now. Rebecca's already on her way because God is already working before the servant prays. In fact, his prayer is part of God's providence. And friends, this morning, I want you to hear this. There are things you haven't even prayed for yet that God is already answering. Like the servant, you can't see it yet. But God has already started working to bring you just what you will need even before you ask. Because he knows what we need even before we ask. Okay, so Rebecca then shows up. The servant asks his question. Hey, can I have a drink? And she gives him a drink. But then in verse 19, there's, another, there's this moment where the suspense builds. Okay, she did the first part. Asked for a drink, she gave me a drink. Okay, but what would she do? Would she also ask about the camels? And she does. She also offers to draw water for the camels. It says, until they finish drinking. Now you gotta understand, like this is not like at Starbucks where they're, they're gonna put out a little doggy bowl and say like, yeah, we'll give you your, your coffee and then we'll fill this little bowl for your doggy. This is not that. This is no small favor. Let me break it down for you. Camels can each drink about 25 gallons each at a time when they've been traveling. 25 gallons. There's 10 camels. That's 250 gallons. Now, the water jars that she's using to fill up the trough, those maxed out at about three gallons each. So do the math in your head. She's got a three-gallon bucket. They need about 250 gallons. That's 80 trips back and forth, back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. It says, until they finished drinking. So this is clearly saying something about this woman, right? She's, you talk about going the extra mile for a stranger. She doesn't know this guy. But there's, man, there's something about this woman that's just exuding. Yes, this is a woman of character. Okay, so so far things are looking good. But you see in verse 21, it says, the servant's still wondering, okay, is this the one the Lord has appointed? He's not sure because there's still another big question that needs answered, right? And that being, okay, what, what family do you belong to? Because this might all be well and good, but if he finds out, no, 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 she's totally disconnected from Abraham's family, he's like, oh, thought I had it. This was a make or break question. So when she says in verse 24 that she's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, I mean, you can almost imagine the servant laughing in amazement and joy. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? The first, the first woman I come to, I do this little thing and here she is and you're actually related. The Lord had done it. He'd heard his prayer. He'd worked through this ordinary scene at the well. There was no, nobody was gathered around watching the scene unfold thinking something amazing is about to happen. No, this is just another day at another well. 
Stranger asking for a drink. She's watering camels. What's so important about that? And yet God just provided exactly what the servant needed. So how does the servant respond? Well, when you really know that you're dependent on God's providence, guess what you do when he provides? You praise him for it. You acknowledge, hey, this good thing, this was his doing. It wasn't the servant's cunning or his wisdom that led him to Rebecca. As the servant says in verse 27, the Lord has led me. God did it. And so the servant pauses to acknowledge God's hand in all of this and worship him for it. So here we see what it looks like to be dependent on God's providence. It leads to humble prayer on the front end, asking God to move, and it leads to joyful praise on the back end when he provides. Okay, so what's, hap- what's going to happen now that he's found Rebecca? Things seem to be going great, right? Well, let's pick up the story in verse 28 then. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, And who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, 
And if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. All right, so a lot of stuff here. We're just going to summarize a few things. First, we got big brother Laban coming out. He's coming out with dollar signs in his eyes. He just saw the rings, the bracelets, and he knows that there's 10 camels sitting at the well with this guy. So he comes out and he's like, come in, come in, oh blessed of the Lord, what can I get you? Right? He offers lavish hospitality, sets food before the servant, but the servant says, hold on. Before we eat, I need to take care of what I came to do. And what we see multiple times in this section is that the servant stays focused. He's committed to being obedient to God's providence. He won't let himself get distracted by the feast set before him. Instead, he lays out the story of how God's good providence has led him to Rebekah. And as he retells the story that we just read, did you notice all the ways the servant acknowledges God's hand in all of it? He says it's the Lord has blessed Abraham and made him great. The Lord gave Abraham possessions. He reports Abraham's confidence that the Lord would send his angel and prosper his way. He said it was the Lord who answered his prayer. And he worshiped the Lord who had led him. So over and over he's like, look, look at what God has done. Can you believe it? I'm here because he did this, 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 and this. And then after he makes the case for how God has led him to Rebekah as a wife for Isaac, he cuts to the chase in verse 49. He basically says, okay, I told you what happened, so will you give Rebekah or not? If not, tell me so I can keep on moving and stay focused on my mission. And here's another one of those moments of suspense. If this were a movie, there'd be some music building in the background. He asks the question. You see the family look at each other. You're not sure, are they going to say yes? They're going to say no. Until finally, Bethuel and Laban acknowledge exactly what the servant's been trying to say. Look at verse 50. They say, the thing has come from the Lord. They agree. This is clearly God's providence at work. They say, we can't argue with that. Like, you just laid it out, and for that all to happen, clearly God must be in this. So in verse 51, they say, take her and go. 
Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. But there's still one more test of the servant's obedience. After a night of celebrating, the servant gets up the next morning and says, Okay, that was a great night. Thanks for, thanks for everything. We're ready to get going now. But Rebecca's family says, Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, why don't you let her stay just, you know, just a while longer? And in ours, it says 10 days. There's, there's some discussion among commentators. This actually might mean longer. It might be a euphemism for a long season. But the servant, he's relentless in his obedience. He says, no, 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 no. Don't delay me since the Lord has propered, prospered my way. He's saying, look, God has done this. I know it. You know it. So don't hold me up from obeying what God is doing. Then comes yet another moment of tension. The family says, okay, maybe we'll get around this. Let's ask Rebecca. Now notice, Rebecca wasn't asked whether she would marry this guy. She had no say in that. But they'll say, okay, will you go, Rebecca? And so now we're left wondering, okay, what's this woman going to say? Will she be willing to leave her family on such short notice? Would her desire to stay with the people she knows or her fear of the unknown maybe just short-circuit the whole thing? It's looked really good, but all it's going to take for her to say is, yeah, let's just wait a little bit. But in verse 58, she says simply, I will go. And with that simple answer, Rebecca shows herself to be a worthy counterpart to her father-in-law, Abraham. Just like him, she is willing by faith to leave her country, her kindred, and her father's house to go to a land she does not know. Like Abraham, she was chosen by God to join this line of promise. And like Abraham, she shows her trust by her willingness to walk by faith and not by sight. As she's leaving, her family blesses her. And did you catch the significance of what they say in their blessing? Look at verse 60. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So two main ideas in their blessing. May you become many, may there be lots and lots of your offspring, and may your offspring possess the gate of his enemies. Now look back, let your eyes scan back to how God promised to bless Isaac in chapter 22, verse 17. After Abraham offered him as a sacrifice, God said, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. There's going to be lots of them. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Both Isaac and Rebekah now share in the promise of blessing together. God puts the same blessing that he spoke to Abraham for Isaac, he now puts it on the lips of Rebekah's family. Then in verse 61, the servant leaves to return to his master, bringing with him the bride for Isaac that he was sent to find. So how did it come to that? How in the world did this, act, this mission actually succeed? Through his faithful obedience to God's providence. Then we come to our happy ending. So look at the last section there, starting in verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. 
So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So even here at the very end of our story, we have this one last providential meeting in the fields, right? We got this beautiful made-for-Hollywood scene where this man and this woman are brought together through all kinds of circumstances beyond their control. But this isn't fate or chance. This is providence. By the working of his hand, God himself has brought a bride of promise to the son of promise. And when Isaac brings her into the tent of Sarah, what's happening is that Rebekah is now taking Sarah's place. She is now the matriarch of the family. Just as Isaac has now taken the place of his father Abraham, who, if you caught it earlier, said he was given all that Abraham had. What I want to say here at the end, how I want to close, is by making sure we see the intent or the purpose of God's providence. Remember from before, the providence is not just the fact that that God guides and governs all things, but that he does so to accomplish his appointed purposes. Providence has a point. It has a goal. It's going somewhere. And here at the end of our story, you see the two purposes of providence. The glory of God and the good of his people. On one hand, God is glorified by working all these events, all these little details, working them together so that he keeps his promises to Abraham. That through Isaac, his offspring would be named. To keep that promise, Isaac needs a wife. And so God does all these things through chapter 24 to deliver on that promise. The offspring, as many as the stars, the possession of the land, the blessing of the nations, all of those would come through Isaac and his God-provided wife, Rebekah. But on the other hand, this chapter is not just, not just about what God's doing on a big, massive plan of history level. It's also about how he does good to his people personally. Notice how the chapter ends. Isaac has a wife that he loves. And he is comforted after the loss of his mother. God's kind providence also had the goal of caring for this one man. And what I want us to see is that providence is about both. It is about what God's doing to order history, to accomplish his big plan of redemption. And it's about what he's doing in the mundane details to show love and kindness to individual people like you and me. Friends, our God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that is why we can trust him when he promises to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes because he is the God of both promises and providence. Last thing to say here is how does this help us? How does knowing that this God works this way in the world, that this providence, this all-encompassing providence is at work, how does that help us? Let's go back to one of those old catechisms. You want to put up that last slide? says, what advantage is it to us? I love that. Even back in the 1500s, they're like, what is it, what's the payoff here? We're not just interested in like nice sounding things. How does it change my life? What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? Here's how it helps us. 
that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Don't you want to live life like that? Being patient in adversity, being thankful in prosperity, and in all things having a firm trust in our faithful God and Father. That's what providence teaches us. It teaches us that God's good promises are marching on through God's kind providence. So now this flows right into what we're going to do to end our service, taking the supper together. Because what we come to when we come to this table, this is a table of providence. Like if you want to see that God is at work to work all things together for the good of those who love him, you will see it nowhere more clearly than here. Think about what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the fact that God so worked in the details of history to bring it about not just that Mary and Joseph would end up at the right place. He uses a census of a Roman empire saying like this is an empire-wide census to get his people to where they need to be so that he can keep his promise that from Bethlehem would come this one who would shepherd his people. Then think about Jesus' life. If you read the Gospel of John, one of the things you hear Jesus say over and over again is, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. Why does he say that? He's saying because there's a plan. There's a purpose. It's unfolding. He says, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then when he gets to the, ready to go to the cross, what does he say? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. So when, we, and when does that come? It comes after we read earlier, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin. There's a plan unfolding. Not only that, we see that Jesus, when he died, he died for our sins according to God's plan. The believers pray in Acts 4, they say, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So from his birth to his life to his death and resurrection, everything about Jesus is the outworking of God's plan of providence. Everything was working according to his plan. And so not only that, what I want you to think about this morning is if you are a believer of Jesus, God didn't just work through all those details many, many years ago. Think about all the providences it took to get the news of this king giving himself for a people to you. Think about the relationships he brought into your life. Some of you might be raised in a, a, parent, in a home with godly parents. Some of you might be friends in college or through a ministry. Some of you may be coworkers or neighbors. How has God worked in your life to make sure that you know about what this means? That's his providence. He has put you where he has, when he has, with the people he has, all for your good and his glory. 